Welcome to Live from Plato's Cave. I am Mario Veen. This is episode 32, Climate Science Rebellion with Ernst-Jan Kuiper. A couple of episodes ago, we already spoke about the idea that Socrates was an activist. He displayed a philosophical practice called paresia, which means telling the truth, no matter what the social norms and conventions are or what the consequences of your actions are. One of my favorite tweets of all time is by the climate scientist Bill McKibben. It says, when scientists protest, their picket signs have footnotes. It shows climate scientist Kimberly Nicholas' picket sign with the five basic facts of climate scientists and of course some footnotes. Those facts again are, it's warming, it's us, it's bad, we're sure, and we can fix it. I think it's safe to say that a society is in trouble when its scientists take to the streets. It's even more in trouble when, like the day before I recorded this interview, scientists block those streets and intentionally break the law. Because after publishing research papers, doing petitions and marches, they now believe it is the only way to call our attention to the science. Saturday 11th of March 2023 saw scientists pasting research papers to water cannons of the police in The Hague. The police later used these same water cannons against these about 80 scientists and thousands of other citizens that were present. All of the Extinction Rebellion and Scientist Rebellion protesters were there peacefully, and yet the government used violence against them. Chris Julian, who I interviewed in episode 26, was hit in the face by the police while he was lying on the ground. You can hear an update from him at the end of this episode. My guest today is climate scientist Ernst-Jan Kuiper. In 2014, Ernst-Jan obtained his master's degree in climate physics, after which he focused on research into the dynamics of the Greenland ice sheet. After five years, including six weeks of fieldwork on the Greenland ice sheet, he obtained his doctorate in 2019. Ernst-Jan is currently working at Milieudefensie on the appeal against oil giant Shell. He also writes articles about climate change for the Dutch program Tegelicht and gives lectures about climate change. He also spends time on climate activism, especially with Extinction Rebellion. And the day before we recorded this interview, he was there too. And later he was arrested with about 700 other protesters. I asked him to explain the climate science that is so worrying that he takes to the streets to tell the truth about climate science and to ring the alarm bell. And also about the fact that he, as a scientist, still has hope that we can do something against climate change. And I also want to know why, as a climate scientist, he sees the court case of Milieudefensie against Shell as the most impactful thing that he could be working on right now. I had a few guests now on this podcast, and uh, some had like, uh, uh, if if I agreed on a date for an interview, they had, uh, how do you say that, some uncertainty, sometimes even climate related, like uh, uh, one of my guests, uh, she there was a huge storm there in uh, in California, so she wasn't sure if how that would go and if she would have an internet connection. But I have to say, I never had the kind of contingency that you had. So, yeah, just uh, as a first question, what does a climate scientist do on an everyday Saturday? 
on an everyday Saturday, normally I play football or soccer for the Americans. Yeah. Um, but uh, yesterday was definitely not an ordinary Saturday, uh, at least not for me. Quite a big uh, climate protest in the Netherlands, in The Hague. And uh, it started at, at about noon. Um, and it's a protest against the fossil fuel subsidies that the government is still handing out uh, each and every year. We don't know the exact size of the fossil fuel subsidies, but but independent researchers say it's it's roughly 15 billion a year. That's that's with a B billion mm-hmm. uh, euros a year. Uh, that's mostly in tax breaks. By the way, it's not direct subsidies, but it's in tax breaks. And our government, our prime minister actually, promised to stop the subsidies in 2013. Yeah, that was at the climate uh, conference. He said, uh, action, action, action. Action, and action, action. I guess you, I guess you listened to him with the action, action, action. Yeah, no exactly, more blah, blah, blah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, but we're in the middle of a climate crisis, and we're still subsidizing the industry that is, first of all, incredibly rich and wealthy and profitable. Uh, but, but second of all, it's just you know, pushing us over the edge within a decade or two. It's just insanity, and 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 it's not just us scientists that are saying this. It's it's actually the the government itself that has promised it over and over again that they would end the fossil fuel subsidies and they simply refuse to do so um so yeah what 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 measures what what options are left after asking politely for for year after year then you hit the streets right i mean that's that's the next step i guess um and yesterday uh on saturday was the, i think the sixth protest against these fossil fuel subsidies and we tried to block uh, one street in the middle of The Hague, which is um, in between the building of the parliament and the Ministry of Economic Affairs and Climate. Oh, that seems relevant. Yeah, exactly. It's a very symbolic place. And we tried to block that. Uh, it's actually the, the the ending of a highway. So the highway ends like in the middle of the city. And I think the speed limit is 50 or 70 kilometers an hour. It, it doesn't matter. But it's a very symbolic place and we try to block it until, well, either the police removes us or the fossil fuel subsidies have have been cancelled. Well, I I want to speak about this a little bit later because I call myself an existential journalist, which is like a philosophical journalist. And I'm kind of reporting on the the absurdity and the insanity of 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 plato's cave and there were some elements yesterday that i'm looking forward to discuss with you because they were just so absurd but i mean i guess it's a sign of the times when you invite a a scientist on a podcast and the scientist says well uh, probably i can do it sunday unless i'm in jail (laughs) yeah I, i I just realized that I, I didn't even answer your question. So indeed, what I answered to to I think a few weeks ago was that we can do it uh, on this day, on this Sunday, except for the case when I'm in jail. Yeah. Because um, sometimes the police keeps you overnight uh, for whatever reason. Um, that up until this day has never happened to me. I'm I'm quite lucky in that sense. Uh, but yeah, I I could. But have you been were in jail. I was in jail, um, yeah, but it was my sh- my shortest time in jail ever. It was, I oh, think, okay. Congratulations. Or so. <laughs> yeah, thanks. They were very efficient, and they just wanted to, to get us out of jail. So, yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah. so they took my identity, and then they threw me out more or less immediately, mm-hmm. um, which was good because I was quite cold as well. Why were you cold? Well, so uh, the protest started at, at noon, um, and the first couple of hours were actually quite relaxed. It, 
it was almost like well i'm not saying a festival kind of atmosphere but it was really calm and peaceful and there were mu there were musicians um until about 5 5 15 p.m uh when the police actually you know started threatening you know we're going to arrest you you can't stay here anymore uh all that kind of stuff uh and all this time there were two water cannons um from germany actually because it said polizei uh, which is the okay. German word for, for police we're standing there next to a protest um i thought naively or not that that it was just to threaten us um but at a certain point i think at about 5 15 or so uh, they actually started using them the water cannons which was kind of I'm struggling to find the words. I, I I never expected the Dutch government to do this actually, to use water cannons in just above freezing temperatures because it it was quite cold, and at about five p.m. The, the sun started to set, so it was actually quite cold as well. So what it comes down to is that they're using just you know freezing tactics. That's that's or whatever you you would like to call okay, it. Okay, so they they spray you with the water cannon. You sit there in the group on on the on the road, right? You get very yeah, wet exactly. in the cold temperatures. So yeah, yeah. that's uh, you know not nice for your health, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And and I I read in the news that four people actually passed out uh, from the cold. Um, yeah. they are okay now, but it 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 shows the extent to which the government is 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 going to basically to to in order to protect the status quo or in this case the fossil fuel subsidies but but were you provoking the police or something did you no, throw bricks at not. them or no, we, what, what were you doing we have a lot of rules but if but the mo the most important one is that we stay non-violent all the time that that's that's not even up for debate or discussion or or, or whatever so basically we were just refusing to leave uh until the government would do what it had promised over and over again, which is end fossil fuel subsidies. And that's a fair demand, I would say. So yeah, at a certain point, the police, well, they, they threatened to arrest us from 12, 15 or whatever, but at after five, they actually started doing it. But we were with so many, it was a couple of thousand, that the police had just no capacity to actually arrest all of us. They, they simply cannot process that many people. So I assume that their tactic was, you know, just to blow us away and just, just, you know, make sure we would leave semi-voluntarily by just, you know, basically freezing us. There were a lot of scientists and academics there and they stuck research papers to water cannons and well that's that's quite crazy <laughs> yeah yeah it, that actually wasn't me but i i i mean the protest was so big i didn't even know yeah this uh i definitely would have joined because it's i think it's it's very symbolic you know you you can blow us away with uh with a thousand liters of uh, of cold water but the science stays you know and and these papers i'm not sure if you've actually seen them but you know they're climate scientific papers warning yeah. us yeah, uh, saying that or, we have to act yeah, now to stay be, exactly. uh, under one and a half degrees. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And that's one of the reasons. I think even the main reason why I decided to join Scientist Rebellion. So the protest yesterday was from Extinction Rebellion, but there's there's like a few dozen sub subgroups, uh, and one of them is Scientist Rebellion, and I think it gives just a very powerful image um, that uh, scientists are actually you know hitting the streets now. Um, 
basically out of desperation, you know, I mean, how many papers do you have to write? How, how many talks do you have to give before, you know, the, the government actually starts to listen? Um, so that and, and we, we actually wear these white lab coats um, uh, while we're in the protest. So, you know, it's it's you can actually see that, you know, we are scientists. Um, when you say well, scientists, yeah. you mean, well, I want to get into your history, but in general, so people working at academic institutions, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, basically, yeah. So our, um, basically only demand is that you should have a PhD or you should be working on your PhD. Um, so in my okay. case, I left, yeah. I left, I left, uh, I left academia a few years ago. So all the scientists' rebellions, people at the protest yesterday, they either were working on their PhD or they had their PhD. Yeah. And how, how many, do you have an estimate of how many in the Netherlands are part of the scientists' rebellion? Uh, yesterday, we were with 81 that were actually in the protest. But yeah, it's it's in the lower hundreds, I, I would say, that of, of the, like the total scientists that are somehow joining and this has increased quite a lot actually because i remember i joined extinction bell in, in 2000 in the beginning of 2019 it was the last few months i was in academia and i actually tried to start a subgroup or um of i think we tried to call it a scientist for extinction rebellion or something like that but we were with five and and we were just too busy with other stuff and eventually well the whole thing collapsed and now wind forward a few years and we're with 81 and growing quite fast, actually, because half a year ago we were with, I don't know, 20 or so. So, you know, it's this exponential growth. Yeah. And 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 it's it's getting more accepted within the scientific community as well. It's not just that more people or more academics are joining, but it's also that it's it's more broadly accepted now than a few years ago. Well, yeah, more broadly, but not, for instance, at the institution where I work. I Even in this interview, I have to be very careful about what I say and what I don't say. But uh, so, and actually, I don't want to say more about it than this, but uh, it's, I it's strange not I to mention it. Okay. But let's talk about you because you're a climate scientist. Yeah. That means you did a master's degree in climate science or was that more general? Yeah, I did my bachelor's in earth sciences or geology. When was that? Oh, I started in 2007. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And I finished the bachelor, but I liked it, but not that much. And then uh, in my bachelor, I followed a couple of courses in climate science, which was actually at the Department of Physics, uh, which I liked way more. So um, after I finished my bachelor in 2010 or 11, I think. Um, I switched from uh, geology to uh, climate physics. That's that's what the master is called, um, climate physics. Uh, and it's a two-year master's, uh, which I finished in 2014, I think. And then I decided to do a PhD or at least to apply for a PhD. And I got one. And, and before you did those courses in climate science, were you interested in climate? A little bit. I mean, I, I do remember watching Al Gore's... Inconvenient Truth. Yeah, in 2006, I think it was. I mean, a long time ago, when I was actually still in high school, I think. And I remember being impressed about it and, and being alarmed. But then a few weeks later, I forgot about it, like I think 99% of the people. 
so yeah, I've always been interested in nature, but not to the extent that I'm now, <laughs> obviously. I I just loved my master. I think the, from a scientific perspective, the climate system is very interesting. We've been studying it for only a few decades, basically, or at least at academic scale. So there's still a lot of stuff that we need to figure out. And uh, it's a very chaotic system as well. Yeah, that, um, that's what I really... Uh, I mean, I tried to study different sciences, but geology was... Because geology has kind of an image, right? I mean, it's changing now, but kind of an image of, of not very exciting science. But for me, it changed <laughs> when I, I read Marcia Björnerud's book, Timefulness, and uh, reading the rocks, uh, like a kind of a overview of the Earth's history. And uh, I interviewed her like twice, I think, for this podcast as well. Okay. But one of the things that surprised me is that something like the tectonic plates... Yeah. For me, that seems like, wow, that's as old. That's at least a couple of hundred years we have known about that. But that was what in the in the 60s or 70s or something. Yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. And that's yeah. a quite fundamental fact about the planet that we're living on. Oh, yeah. It's like it's like the evolutionary theory of geology. You know, yeah. it, it basically explains or without it, you cannot explain anything or at least not on on the large scale. Um, yeah, definitely. And and I think climate science is even younger. I mean, we've known about the greenhouse effect since uh, 1900, but to if we like studying it on like an academic level and, and you know, having more than a few scientists involved is, is only a few decades, basically. So, yeah, so, so, so I loved that part of my studies, definitely. And uh, yeah, as I said, I, I decided to apply for PhD and I got one and I uh, studied um, ice dynamics within the Greenland ice sheet. So I, I won't talk about it too long because it's quite technical and, and detailed, but it, it basically comes down to, how do I explain this in a few sentences? So if snow falls on the Greenland ice sheet, uh, it falls off obviously on top of the Greenland ice sheet, it compacts after a while and then it flows towards the edges of the ice sheets and there either melts away or uh, or is dropped into the ocean. That's like the, the natural cycle of an, of, uh, of an ice sheet. Um, and the way and the speed at which this ice is flowing within the ice sheet, that was the topic of my research. Why is that relevant? Ultimately, the European Union wants to know how much sea level is going to rise. Um, mm -hmm. And therefore, we need to understand both the Greenland and the uh, Antarctic ice sheet. Um, so that's where the funding was coming from. But um, yeah, so to to describe these, these flows, we use flow laws, which are basically mathematical equations. And we know that the flow laws for ice that we have are not working very well, but we don't have anything else. So goal of the research was to come up with a better flow law uh, that describes the ice flow within an ice sheet model, because you, you have to put this stuff into a climate model. I, I hope I explained this. Yeah, for sure. You know, I follow. I mean, ultimately, you want to know how much of the ice that falls there is going to end up in the ocean. Exactly. Uh, trying uh, getting the sea levels to rise. But yeah. in order to know that, you have to know like kind of the behavior of, of ice. Like how does it flow? When does it freeze? When does it? Exactly. That That's one of the insights I got from speaking with Marcia that, that uh, I have these conceptions about what is fluid and what is solid. But like rocks can be fluid, and and yeah. there's all these there's all this motion happening on in inside the earth, in the atmosphere, of course, with gases, but also 
yeah, uh, eyes and everything that that everything is moving basically, right? Yeah. So you're studying yeah. how it, how it's moving, but the laws that that's not not extremely well understood yet. But it's quite exactly. urgent to figure that out because we yeah. in the Netherlands, I I'm in Gouda right now. I think I'm like a couple of meters be- below sea level. So yeah, no, yeah, that it's 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 actually quite correct what you're saying because the we always said that ice is the warmest rock on the planet. Oh wow! Because um, ice actually is a rock; it behaves like a rock, and it it is a rock. And with the warmest, we mean it's closest to its melting point, because it's just a couple of degrees below its melting point, and therefore it moves relatively easily. Uh, you know, if you have a jar of peanut butter, if it's freezing, it's basically solid. But the if it gets closer to its melting point, it it starts to what we call deform. It's 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 not flowing; it's deformation. Um, so yeah, what you're saying is absolutely correct. Ice is basically a rock. It's just very close to its melting point, and that's why it's flowing relatively fast compared to uh, the rocks inside Earth. But yeah, so anyway, uh, I I did my research for five years. I also did a very short postdoc afterwards. Um, but it all came down to the fact that well, for, uh, first I did uh, I did a master in climate physics. I think it was two and a half years. And then I, I, I studied the Greenland ice sheet for five years, reading papers on a daily basis uh, about, you know, uh, how fast the Greenland ice sheet is melting and how much sea level rise that is going to cause. So after a while, you, 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 you cannot deny this stuff anymore. And, you know, it's in your face each and every day. So I guess there's always some uncertainty with regards to like, is it going to be like half a centimeter more or less? But yeah. in general, we have a pretty clear picture of, of what yeah, we can exactly. expect. Yeah, we, we have a relatively good idea what's coming in the long term in terms of sea level rise, but we don't know at what speed it's coming. Because um, the, the speed at which the planet is heating up now is simply un- unprecedented. Uh, in the geological history um, and we just don't know how fast these ice sheets will respond to the warming that we are causing um, so we know that we'll get uh, well there's actually still quite a bit of uncertainty but we know we get a couple of meters per degree of warming um, some it, the best estimate is about two is about two and a half meters per degree but that's in the long term and in the short term the uncertainty is quite quite big actually um so just just to give an order of magnitude idea uh, at the end of this century so in the year 2100 uh best case scenario where we both are lucky with uh how fast the ice sheets are responding and we have actually some proper climate policies we l- we're looking at tens of centimeters um of sea level rise at the end of the century uh so 30 40 50 60 centimeters um if we're both unlucky and our climate policy is is still as bad as as it is today um then we're looking at at a few meters um and this and this this difference in, in increases in time you know in 2200 we could be looking at at multiple meters um and so, yeah, and you said you live in Gouda, a few meters below sea level. Well, at, at the moment, we can handle that. Obviously, you're still sitting there and your your house is dry, et, et cetera. But there will be a time that we cannot handle this anymore. 
um and we probably get in we probably run into trouble at the end of this century at least in the netherlands that's what i'm talking about right yeah now and we're we live in a very rich and privileged country with lots of resources and everything like that so exactly if if i have to worry about that it means that by that time i mean or well we already saw what happened last year in in pakistan and india yeah exactly different places yeah exactly exactly these are the countries that cannot defend them themselves to basically to the climate change that we have caused um and not them but um so uh yeah so the i often say to people that it's not a matter if the netherlands is gonna flood but when you know and and um and it's also you know the the lowest part of the netherlands is also the most densely populated one and it's where all the economic activity is or at least most of it etc et so in the long term this will be very problematic and and not just for the netherlands obviously but uh... and how how um many of your colleagues would agree or disagree with you if you if you make a statement like that i mean trying to get a sense because there are many uh, i know for instance in physics there there let's say theoretical physics there are different uh, theories right and we don't really know uh i'm just going to say uh hogwash now but like the 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 higgs boson yeah, or yeah. or the weight of it or whether is there some supersymmetry or not so there's like a lot of of course in science there's a lot of uncertainty and then people disagree yeah. with each other and and so how much would you say if if you make statements like that are there a lot of colleagues that would maybe say no uh ernst Jan, that's not true i uh, i have a different theory oh uh, n- n- very very few let let me just if it's 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 hard to to put a number on but let let me just say so you obviously know the ipc report you know it's the it's the biggest, arguably the, the the biggest scientific report ever. But but it's uh, many thousands of climate scientists are are working on it. Uh, it basically mentioned uh, in the last report that was released last last year, it it, it mentioned that the lo- what they call the long term committed sea level rise. So the sea level rise that is already coming with the current uh, level of global warming um, is a few meters. Um, and at 1.5 degrees, which is almost inevitable by now, we're looking at six to seven meters of committed sea level rise. So that is a sea level rise that, that is definitely coming. We just don't know exactly when. We're talking about six to seven meters of global sea level rise uh, by 1.5 degrees. <laughs> so, yeah, we just got interrupted because my five-year-old daughter just came in, but it's actually perfect because... Let's say she's the reason why I want to speak with you. Yeah, great. Um, because, and, and, and let's do some climate 101, because I've been speaking with many people in the last, uh, let's say, year about climate. But most of the people, I would say, they're, they're well-educated and, and everything like that. And I hear so much uh, misinformation. Uh, so I'm happy I can... Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to ask you a lot of questions. Just tell me when you get tired, because yesterday you were sprayed by the police and you were on the freeway and you were in jail because you as a scientist were blocking a a road because you don't want the sea level to rise seven meters in the Netherlands. 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. One of the things I notice is that it's it's hard to. I mean, I I've learned to also accept like the emotions that that are part of it. Yeah. But at the same time, we also have to like keep a clear mind and and say, well, this is this is not because we are passionate, well-meaning people, but this is because uh, this is science. So okay, so my daughter is five year old, and you were saying, uh, okay, we don't know actually when it's going to happen, but what kind of time skills are we looking at? Well, the, the one I talked about five minutes ago is sea level rise, and that, and sea level rise is like the slowest component of of the climate system, uh, and that is for the simple reason that it takes a very long time to melt these ice sheets. Um, and for the sea um, and for the ocean to adjust to the new temperature situation. So, so let's say roughly um, or part of the sea level rise will come from the ocean water that is expanding as it heats up. You know, everything that, he, he, that heats up expands um, and part of it and in the long term, most of it. Uh, will come from melting uh, of ice that is currently on land, which uh, is mostly the Greenland and the Antarctic ice sheet. Um, but it's long term because in geology, long term can be uh, billions of years. Yeah, yeah, no, we're we're talking about hundreds to thousands of years. That's that's the time it takes to melt at least the the, the two big ice sheets, the Greenland and the and the western and the western Antarctic ice sheet. Um, for glaciers, we're talking often about decades to maybe hundreds of years. And just to give an order of magnitude idea, um, if all the glaciers in the world melted, uh, it would cost roughly about 30, 40, 50 centimeters of sea level rise. Uh, so that's significant, not for most countries, not disastrous, but it's 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 quite significant. Um, if we talk about the Greenland ice sheet, it would raise sea level by about seven meters. Um, if we talk about the Antarctic ice sheet, we talk about 50 to 60 meters of sea level rise if the thing melted entirely. Um, and now the Antarctic ice sheet can basically be divided up in the East Antarctic ice sheet and the West Antarctic ice sheet. Because, uh, I mean, they are both connected, but they react differently to the, to, to the current warming. Uh, and the um, uh, West Antarctic ice sheet is by far the most, uh, un, uh, the most unstable one. Um, and if that one goes, we're talking about three to four meters of sea level rise. Um, so at this point in time, at least most glaciologists, the, those are the people that study the ice sheets, um, are looking at the West Antarctic ice sheet because it's it's collapsing or it's it's getting close to a tipping point uh, faster than we thought um, during my studies, at least, which is for roughly a decade ago. Yeah, so we always thought that the Greenland ice sheet was the more unstable one, but it turns out it's most like it's it's almost certainly the West Antarctic ice sheet. So yeah, but you you asked about the effects of climate change. Uh, sea level rise is obviously only one of them. It's it's the one we can imagine best, and the one and uh, and the one that is also the slowest component. But in the short term, I'm most worried about the extreme heat and the extreme drought especially in northern hemisphere summertime because most people in the world live in the northern hemisphere yeah i think we've experienced in the netherlands still since about 2018 four four out of our five summers were extremely dry uh, we had about two heat waves per summer where the historical average is one heat wave in about every five years i think and this is quite worrying 
and we don't fully understand why, especially in Europe, these extremes are increasing so fast. Um, Could so it just, be a coincidence? No, we don't think so. First, let's so uh, the Earth has warmed up by just over one degree by now. It's about one. Because when you talk about warming, you uh, measure warming against what is it, eighteen hundred or? Yeah, so I always the, think the, the time that Vincent van Gogh was alive, right? <laughs> like the, the beginning of the industrial revolution. Yeah, exactly, and and that's defined at least in climate science as uh, the period from eighteen fifty to nineteen hundred. The, the average global temperature in, in that period. So by now the earth has heated up by about 1.2 degrees. Um, but we see that in Europe, uh, it's about twice as much. So we're talking about more than two, than two degrees. Uh, and if you look at the extremes, so especially the extremes in um, high temperature, so heat waves and stuff, uh, it's four times as much. Um, so that's why these heat waves, or at least that, that, that explains partly why these heat, heat waves are increasing so fast in the last decade or so. Um, and if we do, we do understand why Europe is heating up on average about twice as fast, but we do not really understand why the extremes are heating up four times as fast. Um, and it's the extremes that have most impact. You know, it's it's not one degree more or two degree more, two degrees more on a regular day. Uh, it's the heat waves um, and the and the droughts that actually have a much larger societal impact. Um, so only looking at the averages is is kind of um, I wanted to say misleading, but it's it's missing the point. I think. Um, and so that's the thing that worries me most, that we don't even understand why these um, extreme temperatures are increasing so fast. It's probably related to the jet stream, uh, which is the flow of air at about 10 kilometers height. Um, but yeah, it's, it's quite a long and complex story and we don't fully understand it. And what about um, uh, the, so the end of last year, beginning this year, there were some extreme cold waves in um, uh, yeah. the northern, northern part of America. Is that related yeah. to climate change? And in yeah. general, how much, how, how certain can you say that? Because if there's a heat wave, okay, you, you look statistically, but if, if there's a yeah. heat wave, well, tomorrow would be too early, but in this <laughs> summer, how, how certain could you say, well, this, so how this is related to climate change or it's not related to. Yeah. So the, you can never say that one, certain heat wave is caused by climate change. Um, but what science, what climate scientists are saying now uh, is that each and every heat wave has become more likely and is more intense um, than it would have been without climate change. Um, and especially heat wave is the effect we can most easily link to climate change. Uh, and there's actually since a couple of years, there's a new research field in climate science, which is, which is called attribution studies. Uh, and there they actually calculate um, um, the likelihood of a certain weather event that could be drought, it could be flooding, it could be heat waves, it could be uh, cold snaps, etc. Et uh, to what extent climate change can explain that weather phenomenon. Um, I think if you Google attribution stu studies or something like that, you'll find it. It's a website from the UN. Um, and in the case of heat waves, almost all of them are 
uh, caused or related uh, to climate change. Just uh, uh, just to give you an idea, in the Netherlands, uh, I just looked this up about a year ago. Uh, we had um, uh, we had about seventeen heat waves between nineteen hundred and uh, the year two thousand, um, and we also had uh, seventeen what we call Elfstedentochten, which is uh, an ice an ice skating event in the Netherlands um, between uh, eleven cities. Um, and we can only do it when it's cold enough. So between 1900 and 2000, we had both 17 heat waves and 17 uh, Elfstedentochten. They were, per they, were, they were perfectly balanced. Uh, since the year 2000, we had zero Elfstedentochten. And I think the, we are at 14 heat waves by now. Uh, but that, but that's of course only in 23 years. You know, it's not uh, in 100 years. So you you can see this 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 massive shift in what in what well is now a new normal uh, in at least my country. So we're already so when we're talking about the climate crisis, we're already there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely. Definitely. So we cannot uh, we cannot prevent uh, the climate crisis. No, exactly, and and that's one of my frustrations that the the by now famous one point five degrees is somehow framed as as safe, but if you would ask a climate science scientist, I, I think none of them would agree that one point five degrees of global warming is 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 somehow safe. Okay, let, so let's let's get specific because I think this uh, could help. Uh, I wrote. Uh short article about this as well that because all these numbers and everything it can get very complex i think we get into action more when we can imagine okay what would this look like or what would that look like so what would the 1.5 degree society look like uh, compared to what we are experiencing already now yeah so we're, we're now we're 1.2 or something like that 1.5 is obviously just just three three tenths of a, of a degree more um, but um, in the middle of last year, um, a, a review paper in Science was published uh, by a couple of dozen climate scientists, uh, which was about tipping points in the climate system. Um, and I don't think I have to talk about tipping points that much, but it's basically when the system flips over into a new stable state. And the paper estimated or at least it first identified i think it was 18 tipping points in the climate system um and it tried to estimate the the global temperature increase for each tipping point to tip to switch to to fall over um and it concluded there as i said i think there were 18 tipping points uh in in the climate system i mean we've known about this for decades by the way um but now it tried to put a number on these tipping points, on each and every one of them. And for four of the, the 18 tipping points, um, the temperature increase was the best estimate, at least was put at 1.5 degrees of global warming. Uh, and of those tipping points, there was the Greenland ice sheet, there was the West Antarctic ice sheet, and there was the tropical coral reefs, uh, which basically means that if we pass 1.5 degrees, uh, these things will go. Uh, these these systems will flip over from the state that they're in right now to a new state, which and that would that would lead to those several meters yeah uh, exactly. sea sea level rise that yeah. you spoke about earlier yeah 
Exactly. And unfortunately, there's quite a big uncertainty here. So there was an uncertainty range attached to it, but the, but the best estimate was 1.5 degrees. Um, for the Greenland ice sheet, we are already in the uncertainty range. So it could already be at this point in time that we pass the tipping point for the Greenland ice sheet. Um, I don't know this uncertainty rate range by heart, but it's probably 10 to 20% that we already passed the tipping point or something like that. Um, but what could this mean for just like uh, life in the Netherlands? What what would change? Well, in the long term, that we we cannot continue to live where where we do right now, or at least the people in the West, which includes your family as well. Uh, I'm sorry to say so. Um, it's it's in the long term. It it will take decades because we're luckily for us at least we're a rich country and we have we're very experienced in building. Uh, dikes and and all that kind of stuff. Um, I do not know that much about it, but I've been to a few talks of water engineers in the Netherlands, and they say that up until one meter of sea level rise, we we can handle. It's expensive, but we can handle it. Between one and two meters, it's it's quite hard and quite expensive, but we might be able to handle it. And above two or three meters, there's just simply no way we can still do this. But that that was. If you talk yes, about, if you say decades, then you're talking about 40, 50, 60 years or something like that. Yeah, probably. But the biggest uncertainty in climate science is in sea level rise. It's, yeah. it's, so that has the biggest uncertainty range. Um, so it's yeah, I'm, I'm always tying it back to, so if, if uh, my daughter or people listening to this, they have children uh so if if you're if my daughter is five then when let's say when she's 50 or something this could happen but for for sure when she has children herself and and these children are um how you say it uh adults uh yeah. that's that's what we're talking about. we're not talking about uh, hundreds of years in the future we're no, talking about something that some of us and for sure our children and for sure our grandchildren will have to deal with. Yeah, definitely. Which definitely. is the part I don't understand about, because I I understand that, um, you know, many of the, the, the people who are in power now who are kind of blocking the scientific climate policy. So the, the ones that are ignoring what climate scientists like you are saying that we need to do right now, so they're science deniers because they're ignoring the science. Most of those yeah. people are, let's say, they're over 50 at least. Yeah, I think so. But they have, many of them have children. Many of them have yeah. grandchildren. So what what's going wrong there? Because is there is it that, that somebody didn't explain it to them? Or is it that, I mean, I know you're not, I mean, you're a scientist, but <laughs> I don't know who, who else can I ask, you know? Uh, them? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that that's hard. I, I, maybe they don't know. Maybe they hope for some magical uh, technological innovation, which is what many people do, especially politicians. But the honest answer is, I don't know. Maybe they don't think about it. That might be, that might be the best explanation. So what I hear from many people as well is, uh, it's too late. So they they kind of start to understand the science a little bit, or they they know that already. Say yeah, okay, well we're doomed. Uh, we cannot do anything anyway. 
Yeah, that that's something I don't agree with. Uh, I mean, there's no way we're going to avoid serious consequences from this climate crisis. Uh, we've left it too late. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we're doomed. Uh, and that's also what the science is telling us. Because uh, the warming, uh, the average global warming is directly linearly related to the cumulative CO2 emissions. So basically each and every ton, each and every kilo of CO2 causes the same amount of warming. Um, and the climate scientists are also quite clear that below two degrees, um, this this relationship between cumulative CO2 emissions and temperature will remain more or less lin uh, linear. So there, so there, in that sense, there's no tipping point. The climate system has no um, runaway effect. You know, it's not like if you uh, if you pass 1.5 degrees, we end up at at five five degrees of global warming um, at a certain point. So. Um, but it is true that that you know the, the further we go along this path, um, the more you know the more severe these consequences will be. So um, how what is the is there is there a big difference between because we were speaking about so we're now at one point two average uh, we're already witnessing effects uh, you you spoke about one point five which was once considered safe. But this was also kind of an estimate because I think you have to pick some number, right? At that point, yeah. the Paris Agreement, they had to, they didn't have all the knowledge that we have now. But then, um, okay, so is is there a big difference between one and a half and two degrees? So if we're living in a two two degrees society, how would it be different from the one and a half degree society? Yeah, it will be more extreme in each and every way. Um, it's it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know by heart how many more heat waves we'll have and how many more droughts we'll have. And I'm, I'm, I know that there are these beautiful tables in the IPC report that that um, calculate this. But I, I, to be honest, I don't know these numbers by heart. Um, but the thing is, ab above two degrees, we are talking about many parts of the world actually becoming un, uh, uninhabitable uh, then we're talking about large areas around the equator obviously because that's where it's warmest um, and th th those includes a bunch of very densely populated countries most notably India obviously um, I mean now in summer we they, they, they almost reach 50 degrees there at, at some points and the extremes are increasing about twice as fast. So we're, we're talking about 50 to 54 de degrees in summer. Uh, so, you know, at a certain point, people just can't live there anymore. Which means they have to move to another place. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so that's so we're talking about millions and millions or possibly more uh, yeah, tens of millions or yeah. whatever people that yeah. have to move to another place in the world. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. E I mean, e easily tens of millions. It's it's most it's it's most likely in the hundreds of millions. Ten percent of the people in the world live just ten meters above sea level or less. So between zero and and ten meters above sea level. And if we reach these these tipping points, then uh, the Greenland ice sheet will add seven meters, and the West Antarctic ice sheet will will will, will cause uh, three meters of sea level rise. So then we're already talking about 10 meters of sea level rise. And what about two and a half degrees? Oh, it's arguably more. I, as I said, I, I don't know all these numbers by heart, but uh, 
two and a half degree world is a world i don't think i want to think about that it's it's it will it, it will be a planet that we do not recognize anymore um and uh yeah it just it just scares me and so you've you've been studying the science but are you one one of the things i hear is about okay climate science they know they know about the problem they know about the causes and and everything like that um but the solutions are just like uh did we don't really know what to do um and you know do i mean the, the so first question is do you have a sense of what the netherlands is doing and what around the world what countries are already doing to kind of try to prevent this uh yeah sure i think before i answer this question it's good to give two very simple numbers um the first one is the what we call the carbon budget for 1.5 degrees which basically um is the is the amount of co2 that the world can still emit before we hit 1.5 degrees and climate scientists can can give this 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 number or this budget uh, yeah because the the crt we emit basically it will stay in the atmosphere forever until you know we take yeah. it out or something like that right exactly. so you're not talking about the co2 that that goes back into the ocean or, or something like that but no the, no the co2 yeah. that's already uh, above the like the the level that the earth systems absorb yeah yeah exactly so um, this carbon budget is at this point in time, we're talking uh, the middle of March uh, 2023, uh, is roughly 370 gigatons. Uh, and a gigaton is a billion tons uh, of CO2. Um, so that's the amount of CO2 the world can emit before we hit 1.5 degrees. Um, and at this moment in time, the world emits about 42, 4, 41 to 42 gigatons of CO2 per year. Um, so, well, it's quite easy to calculate that we have about eight and a half to nine years left uh, at current emission levels before we hit 1.5 degrees. So that's the beginning of 2030s. Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. So when my daughter is like uh, 15, 16, 17 years old, that's... Yeah, that's the exactly, issue. exactly. And that is obviously if the if the emissions stay at current levels. Um, but the idea is that we, of course, decrease our air um our emissions and if you just do some very simple math and you calculate how much the co2 emissions have to go down each year uh to stay within this this uh, 370 gigatons uh you find that they have to decrease by 10 percent a year starting today so we have to reduce our co2 emissions by 10 percent each and every year uh, to have a f um, to stay within the carbon budget for 1.5 degrees. And how how much have they been decreasing uh, the last years? Last uh, year? I think last last year they went up by I think about 0.8 percent. They um, went up. They went up. Yeah, and okay, they went. So up we to have to decrease by we have to decrease them by 10 percent each year. By 10 percent each year. But so yeah. far they have been going up. Exactly. Exactly. So far the only thing in the last. 50 years or whatever uh, that brought down CO2 emissions, at least on a global level, were economic crises, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, or the or the corona the corona pandemic. Those are the only events that 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 caused a temporary dip in the uh, continuous growth of the emissions. Do you know how much the dip was from the corona crisis? 
Yeah, uh, on the global level, it was about five and a half percent. So that's about half of what we need to exactly, do. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And we need that, uh, you know, year after year. That's that gives that. I mean, if that's not a crisis situation, I don't know what is. Yeah. Um, so, um, well, and just to give you an idea, the the Netherlands is doing uh, about two percent a year uh, on average. I mean, it fluctuates a bit, but we we're decreasing our emissions by roughly two percent a year. And I think most Western countries are in that ballpark. Yeah. Um, so, so we're what, not what, close. Okay, so if we keep doing this, like going at this rate and maybe like increasing it a little bit, let's say the, the Green Left parties win in the Netherlands and, and all over the world, we start to increase it a little bit. Yeah. Uh, everyone gets solar panels and yeah. all that stuff. So not, not too radical, you know, but just like, oh, we, we are going to change it a little bit. What do you think? Because we talked about one and a half, two degrees, two and a half degrees. Which of these will we... Uh, Rich? Well, if 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 current worldwide policies are actually implemented, we're talking about uh, just above two degrees of global warming. Yeah. Um, the, and, the, and if, the policies, which with by which you mean, like the promises that the governments have made already about what they need to do. Yeah. So there there are the there are the current pledges and the current policies. So the so the current policies are I think in line with two point two degrees two point one degrees, uh, which means that if for the rest of the centuries the current policies stay in place but nothing changes, world world worldwide we end up at just above two degrees, um, and if all the pledges and with pledges I mean climate new, climate neutrality in in twenty fifty that's the um, thing that is pledged most often. Uh, we're talking about just below two degrees, 1.7, 1.8. Okay. Um, and just below two degrees is not is not the society uh, we want our children to grow up in, right? No, def no, no. definitely not, because we, we most likely passed a number of tipping points and we will see a, a, a severe increase in weather-related um, uh, disasters, basically. Um so yeah and as i said what is needed by now for uh, 1.5 degrees is 10 percent co2 reduction per year um now the thing that i learned only in the last half a year to a year is that um the ipc well it has three working groups the ipc so uh they're basically three reports that that are released uh the first one is called working group one and then the second one's Working group two and working group three. The first one explains uh, why the climate is changing. Uh, the second one is explaining what are the consequences, uh, and the third one is explaining what what can we do about it. Uh, and my studies for my master and PhD only looked at uh, working group number one and two, so more like the physical science, uh, and we never looked at working group three. Uh, because that's more economic policy driven, you know, it's, you know, how many solar panels, what kind of policies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but for my job, for the job that I have now, at least, um, uh, I learned quite a bit about working group three uh, and the policies and the models that they propose and implement. Um, and instead of proposing a 10% CO2 reduction per year, which is what should which is what they should have been doing. They propose uh, for 1.5 degree pathway, as they call it, about five to six to seven percent 
CO2 reduction per year. Uh, and then they claim that this is in line with 1.5 degrees. Um, but that's quite weird because then, you know, you go over the budget, obviously. Um, but what they assume is that in the, that after about 2050, um, people will take carbon out of the atmosphere at an industrial scale. Really? So how, yeah. how will they do that? Because I spoke to a geologist, to Marcia Bjornhout, and she said, well, that's quite, uh, <laughs> you can plant a lot of trees, you can do a lot of stuff, right? But exactly. Yeah. Exactly, and this is this. I, uh, there are few topics within the climate discussion that get that get me so upset as as this one, which is called an overshoot because you go over the budget, uh, or it's called negative emissions. So at this moment, we're doing positive emissions; we emit to to the atmosphere, and negative emissions is taking CO two out of the atmosphere. The thing is that we've already planned that the next generation will do this because that's basically what it comes down to, right? I mean, yeah, my daughter will be like thirty in her first exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so her job can be to figure out how to take all the uh, uh, you know uh, refugees from India and everywhere are coming here uh, during the heat waves. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay. So, yeah, so it's not just that we say, hey, guys, sorry for all the climate change that, w that we've caused, but uh, you also have to take hundreds of billions of tons of CO2 out of the atmosphere because we, because we decided to go to go over the budget and we assumed that you would take it out again. Um, and the, at, at this moment in time, the technologies to do that at the scale that is required, which is, as I said, uh, hundreds of billions of tons in, in total, um they're just not there we still have to invent these technologies uh i mean if if this doesn't border insanity then then i don't know what is um it's it's an ethical on the on a scale that that I'm, I'm 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 struggling to find words to be honest um it's yeah um yeah as you notice i'm struggling to find words um uh, so, but yeah, we, we already assumed that, that the next generation would do this just so that we can claim that 6% CO2 reduction a year is enough, but we're not even close to doing that because because global CO2 emissions are roughly flat. They, they, they increase a little bit or they decrease a, a little bit, but they're not even close to doing minus, minus 6% a year. So that's why you were on the freeway yesterday. Exactly, exactly. And as long and, and, and at the same time, our our government is claiming to be aligned with 1.5 degrees, which is just mm -hmm. it's just it's just nuts. It's just so nuts. just to go back to what we talked about earlier, uh, what you were um, uh, demanding on the freeway is actually a, a, because the Dutch government promised that they would uh, by the end of 2022 they would stop investing in new um, fossil fuel sources, right? Something. No, like that. that's uh, oh yeah, that's yeah, that's actually a different topic. This was about fossil fuel subsidies. All right. Yeah. Um, we call them subsidies, and that's actually quite right because the because the World Bank also call them subsidies, but. Uh, in practice, it's more like tax breaks um, for the fossil fuel industry. And what is the, the um, so the fossil fuel industry is is taking more fossil fuels out of the uh, earth? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they don't have to pay certain taxes, which you and I have to pay. Uh, just as an example, um, if you buy a train ticket, there's a certain tax on that. It's value added tax and all that kind of stuff. 
Well, if you buy um, if you buy a plane ticket, uh, there's no tax uh, on the fuel that goes into the plane. That's a direct subsidy which favors air, air travel over train over train travel, and that's just one exception. Uh, one um, example, I mean. Um, but actually, uh, you you mentioned an interesting topic because um, that's or at least I think it's interesting because it because it goes back to the carbon budget that I talked about five minutes ago. You know, it's the three hundred and seventy gigatons that the world can still emit. Uh, but if you look at the current fossil fuel infrastructure that that we have worldwide. So that's not the infrastructure we are still de we are developing or we are going to develop in the future. We, if you just look at the current fossil fuel infrastructure, uh, the best estimate is that uh, this will emit about twice as much CO two as the carbon budget for one point five degrees. So we are already overly invested, if that's the right word. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but um, into fossil fuels and 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 the infrastructure. Uh, which means that we either go above 1.5 degrees um, if we if, if we finish this infrastructure until the end of its planned lifetime, uh, or we have to uh, or we get uh, uh, stranded assets on a basically on a massive scale, um, and therefore the scientific consensus is that all new fossil fuel projects are in violation with the 1.5 degrees. Uh, it's that simple it's 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 no more complicated than what i just explained the current fossil fuel infrastructure is already twice as much as the carbon that can still emit uh and what are governments and fossil fuel companies around the world doing they're still investing in new fossil fuel projects yeah like um shell is is planning to drill for new resources in in the netherlands in the Wattensee, i think yeah exactly they have about 768 if i remember correctly it's in the 700 at, at least um pro uh, projects that they want to develop within the next few years or decades just like all the other oil and gas and coal companies by the way um so they're so they're basically taking a massive gamble that we you know uh just that we will finish these projects uh and go far above the 1.5 degrees so before we speak about Shell, yesterday I've been kind of following the, the demonstration online and I've been publishing some columns and I've been kind of monitoring the reactions also because my previous episode, as you know, was with Lee McIntyre about science denial yeah. Yeah. And, and looking at the patterns. So um, maybe we can just do some quick questions because I get all, I notice I'm getting the same responses because I'm, I'm obviously supporting, uh, Extinction Rebellion. I'm not, uh, a climate activist myself, but I think, uh, you guys are heroes and, and I have a lot of respect for that. And, uh, who knows, I might join it as well, but that also, yeah, everyone has to do what their, look what their part is. Right. But yeah. So. What, what I get as a reaction, so we've already covered, is it too late, basically? And you're saying, well, no, well, it's too late to remain under a safe level, but it's not, I mean, you want a two degree society instead of a two and a half degree society, if you can choose, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Exactly. And that's actually also what the IPCC says. It says every fraction of degree matters, especially above 1.5 degrees. Then the next thing is okay. Um, but what, what Extinction Rebellion is proposing is unreasonable. And it will basically mean that our society will collapse because the economy will collapse. Uh, so the, the measures that you are proposing that we should take will actually lead to a collapse of society now because, uh, because of well, all those reasons. Yeah, I, I, my short response would be that the future is going to be radical anyway. Uh, we've left it simply too late. We either have radical climate policy or we get radical climate change. Those are basically the only two options that are left after more than three decades of delay or denial and, and all that kind of stuff. As I said, 10% CO2 reduction per year is radical. Don't get me wrong. But if we don't do it, we'll get radical climate change. Uh, I mean, those are the only two options that that are left. Uh, and, and I just prefer to get radical climate policy than to get radical climate change. But then they're saying, well, then you should be blocking a freeway in China because what we do in Holland uh, doesn't have any effect. Anyway, we're such a small country and China is, is and India and all those countries are uh, building coal plants. So you should be going there. And until China starts to do something, why should we be, you know, uh, the best boy in the class? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I, I get that response a lot as well. Uh, first of all, I think the per capita CO2 emissions of the Netherlands are still higher than the per capita CO2 emissions of China. Um, so, of course, we are a smaller country, uh, or at least we emit less, but that's because we are uh, a smaller country. Um, Second of all, most or most about 30% of China's CO2 emissions is for the products that they make for us. So that's the iPhone, that's all the plastic uh, stuff, etc. that you have in your house. They emit the CO2, we get the stuff, or at least that's how the, the CO2 accounting works. Um, and third, and third of all, I think we also have a much higher historical responsibility for the climate crisis than they have. They they only started to increase their emissions in the last roughly 10 to 15 years, uh, while we had uh, high emissions for many decades in a row. Um, and it doesn't mean that actually China is not, is not uh, investing in renewable energy. Roughly half the... Uh, roughly half the uh, global added capacity in renewable energy is in China. So they're investing a lot in pollution, but they're also investing a lot yeah. in green energy. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So they simply need both because their economy is growing so fast. Uh, but they are actually investing more in renewable energy than we do. Plus, they actually control all the supply chains of renewable energy energy so they control the critical metals that go into windmills and solar panels and batteries and, and stuff like that which in the long term or or maybe even the short term could, could become quite problematic for for the european continent as well so another one which is a little bit more complex and i get it and I'm, i think we need different voices in climate uh, let's say supporters a lot of people i speak to they're actually working on, on uh, doing something good. 
let's say, okay, there are the people who speak about and that you say duurzaamheid, sustainability, and we need to do something for sure. We have a big problem, but we need to keep everyone on board. And for instance, I, I'm not very good at diplomacy and I look at the science and then I think, well, the science speaks about climate crisis and it's actually geologically speaking a climate crisis and ecological crisis because the earth had many climate crises and geological crises, but we weren't around. Now we are around yeah. anyway. Um, so, um, and then even, even though I'm not an activist, but I support activists that also scares off a lot of people. And what, what the one I get is, yeah, but you're losing. And I, I don't know if this is a typical Dutch word, but draagvlak. <laughs> so it means that, for instance, we had it during Corona, is that, okay, if you want the society to do what is necessary, you need to keep them on board. So maybe, let's say, the government would propose uh, to take radical me measures that would lead to polarization. Uh, a lot of people that are already skeptical would not be on board. Uh, and then in the end, nothing would happen. So it's better to take a slower approach with more diplomatic and using euphemisms like sustainability. Because then, although it will be slower and we don't get what we want, at least we will achieve a little bit of it. Yeah. Um, well, my reaction would be that that is not how societies have changed in the past, or at least not how societies have changed radically in the past. Because what we're trying to do, and, and well, first of all, let me say that now I'm I'm not talking about climate science anymore, but more social science, which is not the thing that I'm, uh, well, uh, that that I'm interested in most. But it's it's basically about what they call shifting the Overton window. Uh, and the Overton window is, is the part in the political discussion that is considered acceptable. And we, as Lise, as um, Exchange Rebellion, are trying to push that towards, well, either the left or the green direction, whatever way you want to call it, by doing radical stuff. Because shifting the Overton window towards the left or the green part causes the center to shift as well. Maybe I should just give an explanation. About a, a, few, a few months ago, we had uh, Just Stop Oil in the UK who threw soup at paintings. I mean, these paintings were obviously protected by uh, by glass plates. Which, um, by the way, that was one of those beautiful ironies because I was talking about, I associate Van Gogh with the Industrial Revolution. So those yeah. were Van Gogh paintings. So they were throwing yeah. soup at the paintings of someone who painted them during the time that the problem really started. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Just to be specific, at the glass covering the painting and exactly. they were not intending to damage the painting itself. Exactly, exactly. But what these actions do is they shift the Overton window. And because uh, by that time, that was considered too radical. But I often got the criticism, you know, yeah, I understand that these uh, kids or, or these or these young adults are freaking out about about the climate crisis, but I don't agree with what they're doing. But why don't you go protest in front of Shell's headquarters? Um, while just a month before that, protesting before Shell headquarters was considered extremist, and they and they basically said, "Why don't you walk in a climate march?" Um, you know, and five years before that, or I think I walked my first climate march about eight years ago, or, or whatever. That was considered quite radical, actually. And there was yesterday actually also a protest in in front of a Shell building. 
Yeah, I think but, so. Yeah, but that yeah, you think so because it was not on the news and yeah. it didn't get any coverage. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I I actually did uh, an action with uh, Scientist Rebellion on the exact same day that we had a uh, someone who glued himself to a painting in the Netherlands, or again the the class before the, the painting. Um, we had zero media attention whatsoever. All the media attention was going to the guy who was doing that in the in the museum. So you you're shifting the Overton window, and and yesterday we saw that as well. You know, by now it's easier for moderate people who never did any climate activism whatsoever to join a climate march because now the most radical thing is to be in a blockade where the police uses a water cannon and these people might not want to join that part of activism but they now they might think okay well the least i can do is walk a climate march right and so for instance because you were blocking the freeway yesterday someone listening to this can propose to have all vegetarian lunches in their organization yeah. Which just like a few years ago would was maybe considered too extreme or something, but that might yeah. actually be like, oh, actually we can, yeah, we can do something, and we don't like yeah. these extremists and blah blah blah. But yeah, uh, yeah okay, switching to an, uh, we can speak about what people can actually do listening to this, right? But I, I think switching to a vegetarian or even vegan standard of food in organizations is. For me, it's really a no-brainer if you do the calculations and everything. But even that is is considered now too extreme. And yeah, so uh, I, I, this is a part where I have to watch my words. But in many organizations, scientific organizations, even this, they're not doing to do their part for the climate crisis. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's strange, by the way, why I have to watch my words, right? Because I thought we had yeah, like definitely. freedom of speech and academic yeah. freedom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I also really I... like my job, so uh, <laughs> I really need my job. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I've been there as well. I, I actually, uh, in the last couple of months that I was doing my PhD, I gave actually a talk uh, at my department why I joined Extinction Rebellion. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's called the Friday Earth Science Talk. So when so was that? Uh, beginning of 2019. Uh, okay, so that's four, four years, year, about four years that's, ago. Yeah. That's, that's about four years ago. Um, and it's this informal talk uh, at Friday, four o'clock. And then after the talk, everyone has a beer and, you know, you you, you just, and then, and then the weekend starts. Um, and it was basically a talk about why I joined Extinction Rebellion, why I decided to join Extinction Rebellion. And actually many people refused to show up which was, you know, it was this informal talk where you have a couple of beers afterwards, but they just refused to show up. I mean, that was not all of them, but I think a quarter or a third or whatever was was just simply not showing up because they they thought that activism and academia should be strictly separated and it jeopardizes your objectivity, etc. Et and I think that has changed a lot or dramatically in the last in the last four years. One of the main things I do in this podcast is to explore interdisciplinarity where, you know, the traditional boundaries between sciences, but also between science and society are kind of being beginning to blur. And um, so that this is one example of that, I think, where if you're a scientist, you're not an activist or if yeah. you're 
like that right but so you're saying that so how how has your experience been and what have because let's speak from the perspective of scientist rebellion because all of them are working in scientific institutions so what have you heard about are they open about that in the institutions do they get support is it is it a problem or i'm i'm, I'm pretty sure that at least um, the majority is quite open about it I, th- I think almost all of them i mean i i don't know all of them that well and we we don't meet on a weekly basis or whatever so i i don't know from all 81 that that joined yesterday but they share it on social media they they discuss it with their colleagues uh etc so i think it's it's they discuss this the vast majority of them maybe even all all of them actually mentioned this and discussed this with their colleagues yeah definitely and and do they get problems with this or is this uh no, I don't think so. No. Okay. Um, but of course, there's a selection bias here because the one that might get problems don't show up. So, I mean, there could be a, a small bias there, obviously. Yeah, but that's a good point, actually, because I so I've heard personally from people I post sometimes on my LinkedIn about climate or about Extinction Rebellion. And I've heard from some people saying, well, actually, I agree with you, but I'm not going to like your message because um, if if I do that, People in my organization can see that and that might cause problems for me. Yeah, yeah. And that's something I understand, to be honest. I mean, I don't like that our society is organized that way or that that, that social pressure is causing this kind of behavior or this kind of decisions. Um, but I do understand, you know, we all need a job, we all need to pay taxes and a mortgage. Uh, and most of people in academia actually like their job a lot because otherwise you would not be working in academia, I guess. Um, so it's something I, I completely understand. Um, and the advantage that I had in, in the beginning of 2019 when I did the, when I gave this talk is that I already decided to leave academia uh, or at least my, my PhD slash postdoc contract ended and I decided not to... to um, well not to stay in academia but why not because you were you're working in maybe the most relevant scientific field yeah. at the moment why did you decide to leave um well there are many reasons well there are there are a couple of reasons but one of them was that i became convinced that writing more papers uh, and doing more research was not going to be the the thing that would solve the climate crisis i mean don't get me wrong climate science is is is, is we should definitely continue doing that don't get me wrong um but we know enough about this topic to 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 hit to hit the emergency break uh but we simply don't so i decided to become an activist uh one way or another um and first i did uh i was unemployed for about 11 months so close to a year uh and i i spent 80% of my time doing Extinction Rebellion related stuff. Uh, so I was also organizing these kinds of protests. I gave a lot of talks as well um, to convince people uh, to join Extinction Rebellion or to inform them about the climate crisis um, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then after a while, I, I well, I uh, I needed an income as well and, and I wanted to work again, but uh, it, I, it, I, I, took all, I took almost a year off until the beginning of 2020 <laughs> things are moving fast huh? yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah i'm calculating uh, <laughs> yeah um 
And then I worked for a small NGO called Banktrack for two years, which is an NGO that is tracking the uh, what we call the un, what we called the unethical financing done by the banking system. So basically, the financing of deforestation uh, practices that cause human rights violations, and in my case, uh, financing fossil fuels. And which banks are we talking about? Are you are you able to say? Basically, all of them. Which are the worst? Uh, in the Netherlands, it's ING. Globally, it is JP Morgan Chase. We're talking about a uh, uh, financing of about 60 billion US dollars per year that go into the fossil fuel industry for this one bank, JP Morgan Chase. So we're talking about a lot of money that is just, you know, continuing to, to pump more uh, money into the fossil fuel industry, which is used for new fossil fuel projects, you know, and as I just explained these fossil fuel power projects are uh, not in line with one point yeah so we should be hitting the brakes but we still have our foot on the gas pedal yeah 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 uh yeah exactly uh and now since uh since june last year so what is it about uh, nine nine months now um i'm working for Milieu which is part of the friends of the earth network in the netherlands and I'm working on the court case against uh, Shell, the big oil major. I'm one of the researchers there who is mostly looking at the climate reports uh, and what they mean to, to this court case. So with Lee McIntyre, about Science Denial, we spoke about the Exxon New studies that, that came out uh, now, I think a couple of months ago, but this was already common knowledge that actually... Uh, <laughs> The people that did your job, like this climate scientists in in the like forty years ago, they were the best climate scientists were working for ExxonMobil and those kind of companies. And they actually had very accurate prediction models of of what we are in right now. The fossil fuel industry on a large scale, they they knew actually the crisis that we are in right now, and they knew what was coming. And instead of sharing this information with the public, they chose to keep it for themselves and actually chose to hire merchants of doubt. So sell doubt as, as their product. So yeah. they said, We're, yeah, we need the public to understand the uncertainties of the yeah. climate crisis. This, this is all like, this is not, I mean, I'm sometimes disappointed that the conspiracy theorists, now we have an actual conspiracy theory and they choose to ignore it but this is all <laughs> this is all 100 certain because we have the emails we have everything yeah, we, we know exactly. this we don't exactly. know what they're doing now but we know that uh, this is yeah historically the role that the fossil fuel industry including shell uh, has played in in the climate crisis yeah and yeah, yesterday exactly. i was posting a lot about the extinction rebellion protest and i got some shell advertisement on my uh, <laughs> timeline which is so funny because it was about that they're d developing green diesel for a truck or something. And honestly, the feeling it gave me was like uh, Marlboro is advertising on my timeline for that they now have uh, cigarettes with vitamins, uh, <laughs> while one of my loved ones is is uh, suffering from lung cancer or something. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so I'm just saying a lot about Shell because I don't know how much you can say because you are working on the court case. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, uh, it, it Shell went into appeal. I think that's the way you say that in English. 
Yeah, can you can you bring us up to speed? Because many people maybe don't know about the court case against Shell and now it's about appeal, but there was a first court case already, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, which was at the end of 2020. And the verdict was almost two years ago now, uh, in 2021. Uh, and the verdict was in line with what Milieu Defensie demanded from Shell, uh, which is that Shell, that the Shell Group, as it's called, uh, reduces its emissions by 45% in 2030 compared to the year 2019. And in this case, it's important to emphasize that this is not just the emissions of Shell itself, so Shell's uh, offices and Shell's uh, refineries, but also of the products that, that Shell is selling, which means your gasoline, or at least the gasoline they sell in um, in in their gas stations, which is called scope three. That's that's what um, that's the technical term, at least. So that was the verdict, because that is in line with the global with uh, what is needed on a global average to stay to have any chance of staying below one point five degrees. This this the forty five percent reduction. I mean, is uh, is in line with that. So we demanded that Shell would do at least uh, the global average. Uh, of what is needed to to keep warming uh, to 1.5 degrees. And Shell's slogan is powering progress. Powering progress. And green, yeah. they, they say they're a green company, so I assume they <laughs> happily complied with the judge's verdict. Uh, uh, no, they're not. Or at least we don't see any change in the policy what whatsoever. While the policy was, and I'm not, I don't know the English term for this, but uh, they had to comply with the verdict. Uh, even though they appealed, there's a technical uh, English term for this that I don't know. Uh, yeah, so until uh, it doesn't mean that just because you appeal that you don't have to do anything now, you have to exactly, act as if. Exactly. As if yeah, yeah, okay. yeah uh, exactly. But uh, we saw no change in policy whatsoever um, from, from Shell. Um, so they're simply not complying, at least as far as we can tell right now. Um, uh, and and then Shell decided to appeal, uh, and that's the part where I'm 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 working on together with the rest of, of my team, obviously, uh, and the lawyers. Um, and we expect that the case will go to court, or at least the hearings will be at the end of this year, so December 2023, maybe even a bit later. So then Shell is going to explain why they don't want to reduce their emissions. Exactly. In accordance with yeah, keeping it beyond, below 1.5 degrees. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and roughly speaking, the court case consists of two parts. The first part is, does Shell actually have an obligation to reduce their emissions um, and preventing, uh, well, the, the climate crisis from escalating further? Um, and our lawyers are pretty sure that, that well, first of all, uh, in the in the first verdict, the judge said yes, Shell actually has um, an obligation to reduce its emissions, uh, and our lawyers are convinced that sh that this will uh, that this that this part of the verdict will definitely remain there. Um, and then the second question you have to ask yourself is okay, but by how much? You know that's 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 the second part of the of the court case, roughly speaking. Um, and that's the 45%. And there, that's where Milieu Defense argued that Shell should at least do the global average uh, for what is needed to, to, to uh, 
um, limit warming to 1.5 degrees. And and the second part is the part that I'm doing, or at least the the one the part that I'm I'm working on most. Uh, and there are a hundred reasons why shells should do more, and there are a hundred reasons why shells should do less than 45 percent uh, reduction in 2030. Um, and that's and that's the part that I'm working on most, mostly. And how much reduction are they working on now? Do you know that? From their current policy plans, we estimate that Shell will not reduce their emissions whatsoever by, by 2030. So it will it will it will remain roughly flat. It might go up by a few percent, it might go down by a few percent, but uh, it will remain roughly flat. Right. So first you studied climate science and, and uh, the melting of the ice sheets. Then you left academia to join Extinction Rebellion, be, be a climate activist, and now you're working on a court case. Yeah. Quite interdisciplinary, but why? I mean, I can imagine you can go different directions, but why do you think this is the one of the most relevant things to work on? First of all, because of this, simply because of the size of Shell. Uh, Shell emits about 1.4 to 1.6 gigatons of CO2 per year. Uh, and to put that into perspective, that's roughly nine times as much as my country, the Netherlands, emits on a yearly basis. So we're, we're talking nine about... Nine times the, as much. <laughs> nine times as much, because the Netherlands does roughly uh, 150 megatons a year and Shell does about 1.4 gigatons. So so our prime minister, I think, is uh, good friends with the CEO yeah. of Shell or the ex-CEO yes, or the CEO? That's, that's, the CEO said that he considered our prime minister a friend. Yeah. And our prime minister one day later said in an in interview that Shell is a decent company. Uh, right. Yeah. So if if you could choose between Rutte complying with the XR demands or him talking <laughs> to his friend and convincing him to to comply to Milieu Defensi, that would be nine times more uh, effective or have yeah, nine times uh, more. Yeah, sorry, I'm just saying something, yeah, but it's just speaking, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, so, but, but it's just I mean the the point remains that Shell is in terms of emissions. There are only a few countries in the world that emit more than than the company Shell. So Shell is saying they're powering progress, but they're actually powering the climate crisis. Yeah, we called it powering destruction in powering our destruction, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, in our uh, in our written statement to the court. Um, so it's first of all the, um, uh, uh, the direct impact, but we actually estimate that the indirect impact is much larger because if, if we can get Shell um, to lose the appeal. Which is what, of course, we're aiming for, or at least we're we're aiming to to win this bill, and we expect to to win it as well. Actually, um, then it sends a message across all the boardrooms of all the oil and gas companies in the world. Um, because what I haven't discussed yet is that um, going above one point five degrees in legal terms means violating human rights on an on a global scale. Uh, so there is legal consensus around the world um, that going above 1.5 degrees means violating human rights. And based on that principle, we have sued Shell. So it's not based on the Paris Climate Agreement or, or whatever, because Shell uh, is, is, well, it's, it's, uh, there are no player um, in, uh, in, in the Paris Climate Agreement. But it's, it's this universally accepted 
uh, link between global warming um, and human rights violations, which is set at 1.5 degrees. So that's that's quite interesting, and I think we need also a little bit of hope now. But if I hear you correctly, what what you're saying is that we we have a big big problem now. We're in a crisis, but we we have pretty much all the science already that we need to do to do. We we also know basically what we need to do, but actually all the promises are already there, like all the uh, pledges and and. Uh, policies and everything but we even have all the laws already so uh if yeah, if all, exactly. all the judges in the world would start to sue everyone who is not uh complying with uh or actually you yeah i don't know anything i spoke to your xr colleague hannah prince in this podcast yeah. a few episodes yeah. ago so i i told her already i don't know you know this is one area i don't know anything about but i know about precedent which means that if if uh, milieu defense is successful this could really you're already kind of giving the recipe to other countries yeah. and other other people who want to do this with other companies as well yeah exactly one of my that's actually the job of one of my colleagues to to export our knowledge and 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 the tactics and and all this kind of stuff uh to other ngos in uh in other countries because Winning against Shell was a landmark, of course, and it will help the climate. But it, what will really help the climate is, you know, if all fossil fuel companies are actually reducing their emissions. Um, so in that sense, we, we we're trying to export this this um, yeah this knowledge and this idea and this concept. Yeah, definitely. Um, and and the last couple of years, I don't know the numbers by heart, but we saw an absolute explosion in court in climate related court court cases. Uh, and that's not just against fossil fuel companies. Most of them are against governments uh, for not doing enough. Uh, but we also see an increase in um, uh, in fossil fuel companies getting sued. Right. I'm going to get more into this in uh, in some time. I'm going to interview uh, Jessica Den Outer. You probably know her. She's uh, well. Anyway, she, they're working on like uh, eco site and uh, yeah, rights of nature. Yeah. But I was just about to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, okay, I want to uh, talk about the demonstration yesterday as well, but I think maybe first, can you just tell us, because people, I think most people are already kind of understanding that we're in a big problem and really need to do something, but they feel powerless and they feel depressed because they don't know what to do and of course uh, and in previous episodes i already covered what you can do is is get into action because it's actually very therapeutic and it's very important because you show your yeah. support and you explain this as well so yeah. anyone who wants to consider being a climate activist you know go to extinction rebellions website or something like that yeah yeah then then litigation of course is is one uh, yeah. thing that can be very effective what what are other ways that people can really do something? And of course, getting the solar panels on your house and all that. Yeah, but exactly. I mean, I would love to do that, but I don't have the money for that. I would love to have an electric car uh, or yeah. no car at all. But it's for me, it's yeah, uh, yeah, hard to do that. But what else can we do? Uh, well, it's it's as you said, it's it's reducing your own what is often called carbon footprint um, by you know. Uh, well, cutting your meat and, and dairy consumption, uh, ditching your car or at least using it less. Uh, flying is a big one. 
obviously, um, and all the stuff that we buy in 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 general. Those are the biggest um, emissions for the average person in a country like like the Netherlands. And and I urge everyone to do that. Don't get me wrong, but for me, it's more important to become an activist because that's the only thing that can actually change the system. Yeah. Uh, we had this I, slogan in, in the Netherlands and Goed Milieu begins by yourself, like a good em- environment starts with you. Yeah. So that's still, I think a lot of people are still there. It's also, look, so for instance, a lot of comments about the demonstration. I heard like uh, there were some photos of the XR demonstration and people were saying, well, but they have plastic uh, bags yeah. with them or something. Exactly. Or they, you know, when you were getting sprayed with with uh, the water cannons, people were actually saying, oh, but they're wearing plastic raincoats now. Huh? Look at yeah, that. Exactly, but, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and what I often say is that the, the whole concept of the carbon footprint was invented by BP, by British Petroleum, uh, with the idea to put the blame on you and me, to for you and me to to consider, oh, I should reduce this or that, while while the system itself stays stays, stays in place. Um, so it's definitely good to reduce your own carbon footprint. Uh, I'm a vegetarian. I don't fly anymore, etc., uh, etc., um but person but that's a personal belief i believe more in becoming an becoming an activist or at least something that that changes the system but that changes the power structure and that yeah as you said you can also do with with uh, litigation um you can obviously vote uh, for uh, a green uh, party um well you vote once every four or five years or what or whatever so please do that but don't don't do more or, or or you become active in a in a green party um and um yeah so and and the last one could also be and and that's what more and more people are starting to do change your career you know refuse to work for a company that 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 is doing harm even if your job is not causing any harm and you know switch to something that that you know is actually creating real real value in the world uh i mean i think working career is eighty thousand hours if i remember correctly something like like that i mean uh, it's it's way more than you can than you can ever do with with activism or whatever so in a certain sense that could be the most important decision that you can make to to switch careers but it's up to everyone themselves uh of course but it's still a little bit strange that um uh, just speaking in the Netherlands, but everyone has to look in their own country. Um, there, there are still universities in the Netherlands. I see the Shell logo everywhere. So museums, the cultural industry, and, and many scientific institutions still have fossil fuel uh, sponsors and uh, everything like that, right? So if there's one... Uh, like uh, how do you say that party in society that should be on on your side it's the academic institutions and the health institutions because the climate crisis is is actually also the greatest health crisis that humanity has ever seen and we know what happened with corona but what happened with corona is nothing compared to the health crisis that uh, we're heading towards with our eyes open and we know 100% certain that we're going to have major major health crisis in the Netherlands if we if we don't radically change uh, something yeah. now. Yeah, exactly. That's that's why actually there is a subgroup of Extinction Rebellion that is called um 
XR healthcare, I think, or XR geneeskunde, or, or yeah, the health professionals, yeah, 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 that's a word, yeah. So they're 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 looking at it from their perspective and saying, you know, uh, you know, if I'm a healthcare professional, I also should be doing this kind of stuff. Because the healthcare industry, if it was a country, I would be the I think the fifth most polluting country in the world. Yeah, that oh, that could well be the case. I, I know that in the Netherlands, the healthcare uh, healthcare is responsible for seven percent of the emissions. So yeah, yeah if you which is that, not insignificant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And they have to prepare because they're the ones uh, when when the heat waves come and everything like that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But how? Yeah. Hmm. How how do I say this? My question is like, um, so I'm saying that if if there's one party that should be on your side, that's the academic institutions and the healthcare institutions. And yeah. do you do you think they are doing enough? Uh, to be honest, I I don't know. I I'm I'm I don't talk to them that much. Uh, most likely, they're not doing enough, but. Basically, no one in society is doing enough, or at least so. Um, the default is that they're not doing enough. Um, but, but that's it. Huh? We're all waiting for each other. And um, yeah. I spoke to uh, actually. Okay, uh, this is a segue to the protests as well from yesterday because uh, a couple of episodes ago I spoke to your other colleague Chris Julian. Yeah, you know him yeah. as well, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, actually, he got hit in the face yesterday by the police while he was lying on the ground. Okay, I didn't that? know that. Yeah, no, he's. I mean, he's actually a friend of mine. So uh, yeah, he posted that on uh, on social media that the police hit him in the face yesterday while he was uh, not doing anything peacefully protesting. I didn't see him. Unfortunately, I'm not surprised, or at least it's it it it's it's telling that I'm not surprised. Um, I was arrested before him, so and and I have been in contact since. All right. Uh, so just so what I wanted to say is that he said something in in my interview with him. He said something which was very insightful for me. He he spoke about this Greek concept of parousia, which basically means telling the truth. But on the one hand, we live in a society where you have the scientific reality. So what is science saying about us? But then we also we have a society, so we we have opinions and perspectives on the scientific reality, and uh, also also social conventions and social norms. But at this moment, the social norms and conventions are not aligned with the scientific reality. So yeah. if I say we're in a cli climate crisis and we uh, and we should really not only be talking about this, but about talking about this most of the time, I would say. Yeah. In in our organization, then this is met either by like uh, silence or resistance or outright hostility, which is like it reminded me you had this Dutch doctor Lense Meinsma and and in the sixties he did his PhD on the harmful effects of smoking, and yeah. there's this this um, clip of him where he he had a friend selling tobacco, and he had this agreement that one day a week he could be in the tobacco store. And uh, so he was, if people would try to buy cigarettes and cigars, I guess, in that time from him, he would try to convince them not to do that because he said, well, actually, you, if you smoke this, you get cancer and everything like that. But he was, we would say now, cancelled. So he was treated with hostility in the media. People were laughing at him. So he was telling people about this and uh, that wanted to buy cigarettes and they started to handing 
cigarettes to the camera crew and all the camera crew is starting to light uh, that so if we look at it now it's like whoa this is and people were smoking in front of children and everything like that but that's what so that's what the situation we are in right now like the social conventions side like yeah but i want my meat or i want my car or this or that but yeah um, so he was saying like, okay, what we need to do now is, is one of the things that Extinction Rebellion is doing is speak the truth. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's the first amount. Yeah. Yeah. And, and no, I, I completely agree. Well, that's not surprising. Chris is one of my friends. So <laughs> we talk about this stuff quite often. And, and I think what I often say in, 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 in talks, I, I, I give talks and, and speeches every now and then, well, mostly talks actually, um, is that, you know, there's this group of real climate science deniers, you know, which is, you know, the, the right wing, uh, um, uh, conspiracy theories most, mostly, but then there is a much larger group of, I think also climate science deniers, but in, in, in that sense that they deny the urgency or the severity of the situation. And that is a group that is, well, I don't know the percentages. I think maybe 10% of the population is a real climate science denier. It's quite small. It might be even less than, than 10%. But then there is a big, massive group of 90% or, or 80 or 90 or whatever percent of people who believe that that you know climate is changing and it's causing harm and it's it will disrupt their lives but have no idea first of all to what extent it's going to disrupt their lives uh, and secondly how difficult the energy transition will be even if we all agree on uh you know actually you know changing our energy system but but that means that that collectively we are climate science deniers because um we, as we talked about in the last in the previous episode uh f- people who believe the earth is flat flat earthers they fly to conventions so yeah and, and people who are anti-vax or who don't believe in corona when they have a heart attack they still go to their doctor yeah, exactly, so exactly. they select so we select a part so we select okay uh you know climate change is is real and it's uh we're certain about it and it's caused by humans and yeah we're we're uh very sure about this but we cannot do anything about it but then you're so you're there are five scientific facts and you agree with four and one of them yeah but we can't do anything about it or yeah Yeah. we can do we're already doing enough and and what science what uh, extinction rebellion is demanding is too extreme but actually you're an actual climate scientist who is there because actually you're not even uh, demanding the extremist form that we would need to do to have a one and a half degree uh, society. Yeah, exactly. In, in my opinion, the demands of, of Extinction Baron are more in line with what the science is saying than, than what the government is, is doing and proposing. Yeah. So right now, so we are we're recording this podcast in 2023 and right now I have to watch my words and I know uh people still think xr is extreme but let's see in a couple of years how how that will uh, how that will be yeah exactly so we'll so we'll have not a podcast in a few years and we'll look back or we have another episode i mean i hope i will have another episode with you sooner because i really like talking to you (laughs) i just wanted so did the, the because it was just i mean i know it people got hurt and everything like that but from where I was sitting, looking at my computer, it was so beautiful yesterday. What happening? Because you were just saying 
people are accepting climate change, but they're uh, denying the urgency. And then uh, yesterday, so Extinction Rebellion is for this was the sixth time that they block a part of the freeway, as you said, between uh, the government building and the climate uh, ministry of economic affairs and climate and this is this particular part where the cars have to slow down actually i i don't live in den haag anymore but i i w- was there almost daily and uh, people they slow down and you know and and the last time i was there i was there with my five-year-old daughter and i was looking down at the uh, you know at you guys uh, from a safe distance actually yeah, the police sent yeah. us away and and yeah, they, they shouldn't yeah. have done that they apologized for it later but um so there were a lot of people in support because the the dutch government also started to preemptively arrest protesters yeah, which is yeah, unheard exactly. of peaceful protesters yeah, yeah. but then what yeah. what did the what did the uh, government decide yesterday to put black fencing around that area yeah, exactly. So that you wouldn't be, it, and it reminded me of those kind of black, how do you say, if you um, censor something, you have these black yeah. lines. <laughs> so yeah. uh, to not be able to see uh, that part of the demonstration. Yeah. And and it was yeah, so actually, symbolic it, it, for me for like, we don't want to face the science. Yeah, we don't want to face the protesters. We don't want to face the science. And we just we just hope that everything will go away and the problem will solve itself. Yeah, and I think to 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 add to that, uh, so the police uh, used the water cannons against us yesterday, but they also used it against the legal protest next to us. Those were people who were standing on the sidewalk or pavement, just, just you know, looking, observing, supporting, whatever you call it. Uh, and the pollution was actually using the water cannon against those people as well, which is, un- I mean, using it against us was unheard of. But that's like the next step to using them against people who are doing absolutely nothing illegal. That's, yeah, it's, it's, and, and, but, and, and I, I, I always emphasize that, I mean, this was, for me, this was quite an extreme day yesterday. I noticed it this morning. I slept for a long time. I had to walk in the, uh, um, um, in the morning for about an hour to to empty my head but what we're facing is nothing compared to to what people in the global south are facing i mean absolutely nothing these people actually get killed for for standing up against uh, deforestation or, or climate destruction so um i always keep that in the back of my mind you know it's it it, it was cold and it was brutal and it was um dystopian almost but it's 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 still it's 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 still nothing compared to to what these people are facing. What makes me very sad that uh, the Dutch government is using violence against the people who are there to point to the science that will keep my daughter safe. So yeah, exactly. I don't know really what to do about that, except to uh, yeah, speak to people like you. And uh... yeah, yeah. So when is the next protest? Do you know that? I don't know. I'm. I think they they'll announce it within a few days. Um, so now everyone just needs to relax, need to you know uh, uh, talk about their experiences, maybe even process it, uh, and then I, I'm convinced we'll have another protest in in a month or two. Um, because well, uh, we're growing fast, uh, our demands are not met. So there's no there's no reason to stop. What's so this this pro- because the the protest end of January was already quite big because the government tried to arrest or they they arrested people and everything. Now 
We also know that the government is looking up information. We also know that they use the water cannons and everything like that. So uh, the next protest might be even bigger, right? Yeah, that's that's what I assume. That's what I hope. Uh, um, I think about a year ago, the f that was the first protest. Dina, I'm even bezig, okay? Yeah, so the next protest will be probably even bigger and the one after that. And uh, Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Where uh, yesterday was, I think, we, yeah, we don't know, but it was probably between three and five thousand people, which is about two or three times more than last time. So we're, we're growing quite fast. Yeah, definitely. I would love to do a lot because my podcast is called Live from Plato's Cave and I'm kind of playing with live. You know, we live in Plato's Cave, but also that I'm broadcasting live from Plato's Cave. <laughs> so I would love to do actually a, a, a podcast from uh, from the demonstration, but I have to see if I can get a press card or something like that, because then I could come and uh, interview some of the people and, and just report on what is happening there. Because did you I, you told me already you're kind of you're a, like I, what I call a real scientist a beta guy, <laughs> but did you uh, read about Plato's cave and do, do you have anything to uh, say about it or were you too busy getting arrested? Uh, yeah, I tried to read a bit this morning. I, I was quite busy in the last couple of days, to to be honest. Um, so yeah, I, I I did read it a bit on on wikipedia this morning but uh, to be honest i'm no expert whatsoever uh, i'm more the physics and 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 chemistry type of of scientist or guy um so i i i know the uh yeah i know what plato's cave is but that that's more or less where my uh knowledge ends yeah well maybe i well I, what i can tell you is that it's about socrates uh, and socrates was living in ancient Greece and he was an activist because he was talking to people all the time and they didn't like it. So they sued him because he was breaking the law. And actually he knew he was breaking the law as well. <laughs> so I think yeah. he was one, he was actually, in, so I've, what I'm trying to say is you're in good company because he was someone who was not caring about the social conventions and, and the things about society. And even he was put to death uh, in the end, I hope that doesn't happen yeah. uh, here. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so um, because breaking the law is quite extreme, I think. So I think that's what what scares many people off. It's like, yeah, okay, I might be wanting to join Extinction Rebellion or something like that. But do you have to break the law? Because you know you're not allowed to be on the freeway, but you're going there anyway. Yeah. Yeah, so th there are actually many forms of protest, and we, uh, we with Extinction Rebellion are focusing mostly on civil disobedience to, well, basically to shift the Overton window, as I discussed uh, half an hour ago. But there, there are many other forms of, of activism, I think, and most of them do not include getting arrested. Um, also within Extinction Rebellion, by the way, we, we have media, we have... Um, we have uh, we have people who help us from a legal perspective. We have people who are actually waiting for us with cookies and tea when we um, uh, by the time we get out of jail, which is quite nice. If you've been in jail for a couple of hours and you're hungry and cold, um, that people are waiting for you, you know, and cheer you up and uh, etc. So there, uh, the protest might seem unorganized from the outside, but it's actually highly organized. Uh, if if 
uh, if you're if you're in the thick of it. Um, and there are many roles within Extinction Baron, but also in many other groups that do not involve any chance of getting arrested. Yeah, I heard there's um, even you know you if for instance you're a psychologist uh, that, yeah. that there's uh, psychologists available in Extinction Rebellion because exactly. you have to you willingly suffer violence by your government yeah. And, yeah. and getting ridiculed and getting yeah. arrested exactly. and everything like that. Yeah, that plus uh, mentally dealing with the climate crisis on a daily basis is also quite quite demanding so it's it's those it's for those two uh reasons um and yeah that's very useful because doing activism especially in the beginning but 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 also later on it's it's quite demanding both both physically and mentally uh you know most of us have a job uh, next to it or study or whatever you know and you do it in, in your spare time um so yeah it, it it does take a lot of energy and and mental um strength as well to to do this kind of stuff no well thank you so much not just for this conversation but f also for doing that and uh for going on the streets and also for um yeah because i often say this is the loudest voice of science in our society today yeah um because you're calling out for science but you're also an actual scientist that is saying okay research papers everything is not it's not enough and and this is what yeah. is necessary this is what we need to do right now so yeah thank you for that thanks well thanks a lot and thanks for having me thank you for listening go to live from platoscave.com for other episodes and as i said in my intro i asked chris julian to tell something about his experience of the protest hey mario so yeah, yesterday we were back on the highway with Extinction Rebellion in huge numbers. So that was incredibly heartening to be there with so many old and new uh, rebels in really a nice atmosphere. I was uh, involved in the preparation for the orchestra. So it was very sort of exciting and a bit tense for me to get all these people onto the highway safely and into the right space to, to play together with other people to support them. So it was really a magnificent start of the day that that all worked out so well and really gave immediately a certain nice atmosphere to the whole uh, action even though these big water cannons with the german polizei on them were looming above us so yes of course a lot of these actions are a bit double in the sense that it's uh, an elation to be there together and to stand up for what you believe in for the future uh, and all of that but then, of course, there's also police repression that happens in different ways every time. Yesterday was really quite heavy. We were with so many people that the police couldn't really stop us nor arrest all of us. So basically what they decided to do is try to chase us off the highway using violence. That meant there was a lot of ME with uh, shields and batons and these big water cannons. Um, where we were trying to uh, stop the water cannons, so to just stand in front of them. The MA, the riot police, um, sort of ran into us, tried to club us over and push us out. In the process, somebody next to me got hit. And when I called out that there was police violence to the journalists, I also got smacked in the face. So yes, long story short, it was really a great and successful action, uh, and in that sense, a lovely day, but also always a bit disheartening to have to sort of pay for that by encountering this police violence, having to sort of endure this yeah, really excessive 
operation by the state, which is really also just kind of a panic because they can't contain this um, civil disobedience, this force of civil disobedience anymore. Um, so they start to uh, increasingly act uh, repressively. And uh, I guess we'll have to see where those forces lead in the coming uh, months.